0: When you have power, you need to protect the person over whom you have power through the use of appropriate boundaries that, sh- that correct for the imbalance. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about systems in particular, you can't bring about life-giving change in a system if you're not simultaneously aware yeah. that the invisible force that's keeping those interlocking triangles, remember those emotional triangles? I, I do. That, they, that, that the, yeah. um, the physics of those triangles has everything to do with who has more and less control over resource.
1: Common Good, the podcast where we chat to ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. My name is Polly Reese. Fam, I am delighted to bring to you today the Reverend Sarah Drummond. This conversation so incredible. We talk all about leadership in so many various forms, and that might be because Reverend Sarah is the founding dean of Andover Newton Theological School at Yale Divinity. She has such an incredible pedigree of so many different positions of leadership. We talk about leadership of systems, leadership of systems in transition, leadership of churches and nonprofits, leadership of educational system, the limits of empathy in leadership leadership through covid and change quick content warning off the top we do talk a little about the impacts of white supremacy and racism on all of these systems we talk a lot about the challenges of depression through covid so as always if these things are not right for you to listen to please feel free and switch this one off and we will catch you in the next one moving on from that i am so delighted for you to hear this conversation Please enjoy. Are there there any particular things that you would consider yourself an advanced beginner in, in the culinary Mm. world?
0: In in the culinary world, not one thing. I grew up in a family of amazing cooks of the Lebanese ancestry. A really good Lebanese meal takes about three or four days to prepare, Uh and I wasn't allowed much latitude in those kitchens.
1: I, I did not know the Lebanese connection. For just you. my mom. Okay.
0: Not just my mom. My mom.
1: Yeah. Is Lebanese
0: American? Yes.
1: That side of the. That side, the side of family. the
0: family. That's right. That's right.
1: So outside of the, outside of the culinary world, what are uh, the things that you consider yourself an advanced beginner for?
0: Okay. Well, I have some hobbies. I've been more of a workaholic than any other kind of holic in I, I my life. Expected. Well, when you're a dean of a school, it's so multidisciplinary that you never really have a rut you need to get out of because the job just changes so much even over the course of an ordinary day. Like at some point in this conversation, if I just walked you through an ordinary schedule based on today, there were probably three things that I did that I'd never done before. So you don't really need hobbies under those circumstances. But insofar as I enjoy activities outside of work, um, I love my pets. Very, very... Uh, very passionate about my pets and taking care of them and uh, spending time with them. I love to read fiction. Ooh. I'm reading fiction is something that I do for an extended period of time every single day, and I wouldn't miss it for anything. And I have been kind of in and out of really being very uh, focused on fitness because okay. that's a way that I mean, I was joking earlier about my energy levels. It really is um, for me, my fountain of youth when it comes to, maintaining an energy level. And then finally, one thing I've always enjoyed is teaching myself how to do new things, especially learning new languages and occasionally learning new instruments.
1: In talking about the work of keeping up this level of energy, I can't imagine that the pandemic made that work any easier.
0: Oh no, no, it was awful.
1: Yeah. What would, tell me, tell me more about what the work of, of being you was like, how, how the pandemic impacted that.
0: It was a miserable, miserable time. And if I had known upon entering that time, how very long it was going to go on, I think I would have felt really hopeless. But lucky for us, we kept thinking it was just about to be over. (laughs)
2: <laughs> so
0: I, I didn't have to process that we were going into this hole and needing to stay there. Yeah. So out of all of the challenges of the pandemic, many of which were, were purely administrative in nature,
2: sure.
0: uh, few of them were unexplored areas for me because as you might remember, Polly, we had just gotten here. Right. Andover Newton moved here as a school officially in the fall of, of 2017. Right. So it's not like we had all of these patterns and uh, procedures that we had to adjust. We had The cement was still soft yeah. on all of it. And because we had just had to rethink everything, yeah. rethinking it again wasn't that big of a stretch. Yeah. That the truly miserable part was that our students were so disappointed and they were so unhappy. And anybody who's called to educational administration is striving for satisfied students. Yeah. And I'm not talking about happy students. I'm not talking about uh, customer service mentality. We're talking about students finding meaningful fulfillment in their education and finding a deep sense of community and being challenged by people who they really believe care about them. Losing that and seeing their students' disappointment, receiving at times their disappointment um, when it was really directed at me and people with whom I I work who were pretty easy targets because we were trying so hard. That was just awful and I found actually my, if I were to name the point where I went into a situational depression, it was last January around Omicron because I felt that sense of, I can't go back there. I can't do this again. I can't do this again. So it was a very sad time. And the reason I'm going on and on about what a sad time it was is that I'm still trying to process it. And so much of our culture is just saying, well, let's just move on. Like, I am moving on. No question I'm moving on in a very joyful and hopeful way. But the damage was done, and it's not going to repair itself. There was a lot of disappointment, and there's going to be a huge amount of grief that we've just begun to account for in all of the work that we're doing in preparing clergy. Lost generation.
1: Yeah, lost generation, lost everything. Mm-hmm. I, um, I, I had a chat to another person who was saying, we're, we're just now starting to understand the ramifications of the 2008 recession. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like the, the impacts to economy, the, we're, we're starting to see the, the ripple effects of that in meaningful ways with inflation, et cetera, what have you. The
0: thing is with the 2008 recession, we now have a sense that there were faulty models at work. So credit default swaps as a model for underwriting the housing market was just wrong. It was a fake, wrong thing. And at the time we didn't know it and we were incredibly confused. I suspect that 10, 12, 15 years from now, we're going to have a sense of whatever quote-unquote trust we'd had in our leaders to make good decisions that keep people safe. Mm. We're ill-founded, especially as relates to economics, race, and public health. Mm. And because of the fact we're just starting to get our heads around it, we are still pointing to factors that really just don't matter.
1: Yeah. Is there a way that we can proactively get better at pointing to misdirected or less relevant facts? Or is this always going to be a sort of like history repeating thing for whatever the next sort of thing like this will be?
0: Well, right now I think that people are just too tender. There is not enough, um, you know, if time heals all wounds, we haven't had enough time. We people who work in religion and education are still just incredibly anxious about what the future might hold. I had already gone through an existential crisis leading a school that almost went out of business to know that feeling of oblivion on my watch as a real possibility. Most of my colleagues had never been through anything like that before. Not to say that it was so easy for me because of it, but let's just say I I could recognize what was happening, which was um, the kind of anxiety that comes when oblivion, uh, professional oblivion, oblivion of that which I hold most dear. I kind of know what it felt like, so I knew that this too shall pass, right? But let me give you an example of the kind of um, misdirection I'm talking about that just people aren't ready for yet. George Floyd was brutally murdered by a police officer and all of us saw it over and over and over again. And police violence toward black Americans, is not as acute as the disproportionate effects of COVID on the black community. Meaning thousands upon thousands of people died due to systemic racism of the pandemic, but it didn't have a focus. And so we all rallied around police violence and hardly anybody was talking about disparities in healthcare.
1: Medical racism.
0: Medical racism is even a term that, I don't know if I've ever heard it before right now, Polly. (laughs) Like, we were not talking about it. But I, in my daily life, was in touch with my colleague who is the senior minister at uh, Union Baptist Church in New York, and I was in touch with my colleagues at Southport UCC, Brian Scott buried 30 people in 2020 of COVID, 30 people. Southport had one person even catch COVID. So what I'm saying is that those are the kinds of topics that are just really hard to talk about because for me, especially as a white person, to say anything that suggests that George Floyd's murder wasn't the most important thing that's ever happened in history, suggests complete cluelessness. And so it's not a a good topic to address in those ways. But, but when it comes to systemic change, I work for systems. I am Systems Inc. That's my job. So when I see and hear about systems that are having these disproportionate effects, it's hard for me to know when you start actually looking at the deeper underlying problems.
1: What scope is reasonable for where your ministry context is. Mm-hmm. Like, to know when to say, this is the work that I can do, and that, that yeah. my place in the system, I'm equipped to make meaningful change for, without, without an undue level of risk to self, yeah. where the cost is right. Yes. Um, to, to I mean, to go back to systems, the cost-benefit analysis yeah. language, and to, to know to where I'm not the right person to make this change for any number of reasons, mm-hmm. but, but to have the trust as well that there are other people who are more properly equipped and perhaps positioned to make that change.
0: Well, I don't think that the question that you're posing about where I see myself having an impact or not having an impact could be addressed without really meaningful consideration of the concept of role. Yeah. What's my role in this problem? What am I contributing to this problem? What's my role in the crafting of a new way forward? and how do I identify the perimeter around that role yeah. and then identify my partners? Yeah. So with that, you ask the question about where do I see us finding a, finding a way, you know to address some of these issues, perhaps of, of grief or, of disappointment or ongoing anxiety about how shaken up we all are. Um, In this context, in the Andover Newton at Yale Divinity School context, I feel like we're just beginning to get to the point where we administrative leaders can direct students to think about the future. Mm. Direct them to saying, how can I be a part of this? as opposed to, why can't you fix this for me? Mm. So let me say more about this. We attempted during last year to bring our students together as much as we could. But the most important essential tools in our toolbox were not available to us. We were basically, if we had a toolbox, we were missing our hammer, our screwdriver, and our wrench. And so we were trying to put up buildings with spoons and, and forks. Yale did a really good job, insofar as they could, protecting classroom learning. But so much of learning for ministry takes place in the worship context and in a fellowship context. And those two forms of gathering for the sharing of wisdom, for the testing of ideas, for the challenging in a context where there's already a relationship there, so it's not some, random stranger challenging you, it's somebody who actually really cares about you, gone, gone, gone. Mm -hmm. And our community, the Andover Newton community at YDS, really suffered for the fact that we couldn't gain access to what we were used to using. We tried all kinds of creative ways to engage people with one another. But one of our real struggles was that particularly our first year students really didn't understand why it was that we weren't finding that sense of closeness as a community because they didn't have anything to compare this to. So I'll give you an example. I had this interaction with a student who in a group context said, "Well, no wonder we're having these, you know, misunderstandings that crop up, these tensions that crop up. We're just you never bring us together. I mean, we're never able to get together for meals, we're never able to get together and just pray together and be in worship." My response to the student was, I totally agree with you. And a lot of this has to do with COVID protocols that we didn't create, but we have to respect. And the student's response to me, well, now you're just making excuses well, technically I guess you're right, I <laughs> guess yeah. I am. So what I'm saying is the students were just very depressed. Yeah. And I, I'm not ta- talking about depression in the clinical sense of the word, they were just in like in a typical depression, they're not enjoying anything, they're not enjoying things that they would ordinarily enjoy yeah. and they couldn't um, brighten the outlook to save their lives.
2: Yeah.
0: So even in the beginning of this year, any attempt that we would make like maybe say September or so, with returning students to say, so what do we want to do together? How do we want to be together? How do we want to be together in community? It was really hard for them to find the hope within themselves to even answer that question. And in some cases they heard it as what is it, toxic positivity or um, or manipulation whereas we were very much of the mind that at some point we do have to start moving forward. Yeah. And the question that we're asking, how do you want to do this is really meant to signal that we're not going to do it for you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We're not going to do it for you. That's no. such that's well that's such an important observation, right? Because that's that that's the, you know, lead a horse to water yeah thing. Um.
0: Provide the convening power yes. that is educational administration. Yes. Provide the context where the questions can, can get asked and answered. Provide the context where the relationships can form and and, and nurture those relationships. Sure, all of those things, all really good yeah. things. And ultimately, anybody who's ever worked with adult learners knows that they're going to get out of it what they put into it. Yeah. And. The extent to which you take their agency away is the extent to which they'll abdicate responsibility for their own learning. Yeah. You treat them like children that act like children. Yeah. When I'm treated like a child, I act like a child. I could come up with many examples.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: going to take my ball and go play in somebody else's basketball court.
1: Exactly. Yeah, um, sure. I wonder, so when, when I hear what you've, all of these things that you've just said, all of this language goes back to really good systems thinking and, <laughs> and adult learning, which, I mean, I kind had of the, a jam, that's, that's your thing. Yeah. I had the privilege of, of doing directed study with you about this thinking in parochial context myself. But um, I think a very, a very buzzwordy thing that that could be framed into as setting good boundaries.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Setting good boundaries is what I talked with my students about in class yesterday. We're learning about, we're moving in my class on leadership and change from a unit on systems theory into a unit on liberation theology. Mm. So we're moving from emotion to power. Mm. And boundaries really falls at the elbow of those two topics because best understood Boundaries are that which we use to moderate for power differentials. When you have power, you need to protect the person over whom you have power through the use of appropriate boundaries that, sh- that are correct for the imbalance. And when you're talking about systems in particular, you can't bring about life-giving change in a system if you're not simultaneously aware yeah. that the invisible force that's keeping those interlocking triangles, remember those emotional triangles? I, I do. That, they, that, that the, yeah. um, the physics of those triangles has everything to do with who has more and less control over resource.
1: Yes, I, I need for there to be a, a modern audio book of, of, of Friedman, oh, um, of yeah. of, of, um, of, of generation to generation, because Definitely. I feel like that's, I, I don't know that I actually need more podcasts on system thinking. I think I just need to have like that book in audio format so that like when I'm out, like running on the trail, I can just be having those reminders, like family systems, administration systems, like yeah. Emotional systems. Emotional systems, So yeah. I
0: want that too. And what I want is to have whoever is cast for reading The Voice to have a really thick New York accent <laughs> and it has to be an octogenarian Jewish man. Because I really feel like um, you know, from Generation to Generation is Friedman's classic. Yeah. The book that his kids edited for him after he died, uh, um, A Failure of Nerve, was such an embodiment of a person who is just so done. He'd been a rabbi for 40 years at that point. He had seen it all and he was so tired of people fucking up their lives that he retired with this sense of, what's wrong with you people? And you can hear that in reading the book. That's why I assign a failure of nerve to students now as opposed to generation to generation because it elicits such good conversations. So for instance, one of the things that, like clockwork, seminary students have so much difficulty accepting is what Friedman teaches about the the fallacy of empathy. Mm -hmm. He thinks empathy is a crock. He thinks empathy is manipulative and irresponsible. And seminary students just combust at the idea that empathy does more harm than good. Mm -hmm. But you know what? You start getting into it and you think, you know, you're onto something there, rabbi. You are onto something there. And watching students go from being armed resistance to the idea that empathy is not real, that it's not appropriate for a leader. Watching them go from being so offended by that to, you know, you got me there, rabbi. Is one of my favorite moments in teaching, and it happens every time I teach Friedman.
1: He's there's, I, I, yeah. I, I mean, from personal experience, I can just say that it it was it was it, that that was transformational work for me. Mm-hmm. Certainly, um, I, I I have no reason to suspect that I have so many learning differences or career trajectories that would make me different from from another student. So yeah, mm-hmm. I I I would assume so. I want to pivot a little bit yeah. um i want to i want to talk a little bit about the circle of people that you uh, that you run in that that we apparently have so many folks in common we do. um and i kind of i i think i i wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the circle and also what was in the water <laughs> when this incredible circle of leaders were were coming together and could tell me like what it is like to learn for to learn as co-learners among such incredibly strong, powerful, mostly women.
0: Oh, thank you for that question, Polly. In the musical Hamilton, the song I'm not throwing away my shot. Yes. Where Alexander Hamilton meets all of these people who end up being really important to him. So like, uh, so um, John Lawrence, Hercules Mulligan, um, uh, Aaron Burr, like he meets them in this bar, right? And they're drinking and they're carousing. And um, I only found out (laughs) upon reading the the, um, libretto of Hamilton that those, five or six men actually met years apart and not in one day. So not that I assumed that the bar scene was exactly accurate, but it really heartened me to know that it's possible to meet a number of colleagues, not at the same time, but actually have a a sense of a circle of wise people, even if they don't know each other. So I have worked with some of the people that you've worked with, too, Steph Spellers being one of them. She and I went to seminary together. Um, I've worked very closely with Sharon Kugler, who I met years and years after that. I worked for and with Peter Gomes at Memorial Church at Harvard off and on for about 15 years. Um, And there are certain people that I find just kind of circle back into my life that as I said, they don't know each other, right. but I feel like they occupy the same kind of turf. So just a couple of examples. This past weekend, I was in Houston. I was preaching at First Congregational Church of Houston Lovely. in the pulpit of a, a dear friend named John Page. Now, John went to YDS, but I had first met him when he was a first-year student at Harvard. I was his academic dean when he was a first-year student at Harvard. Then he came to Yale Divinity School, and then he came back to Harvard to work at Memorial Church. So that's where I got to know him. I hadn't really known him when he was a first-year student. I assigned his housing, but he was not problematic, so I never saw students who weren't problematic. So I was with John this past weekend, and there was this moment where I looked over at him in the chancel, and I just felt like I had been in that same spot with him yesterday. But the last time we had shared a chancel together was 2007. But here's the thing. There is this meeting point, this crux, between people who love ministry and people who love education. And the pattern that I've discovered over the years is that we always end up finding each other. Most people don't find a job like I have where I'm sitting at the crux. They usually find themselves on one or the other side of it, alternating back and forth but the people who gravitate toward that particular nexus point just make complete sense to me. Mm. They're people who complete my sentences and I complete their sentences. So if I were to just like walk through who is in my circle of confidants, all of them, except for maybe a, a couple of exceptions from my college years, really anybody that I met yeah. from seminary and onward, um, really can't imagine themselves being in something other than education and ministry and i'm not saying education and religion you notice i'm here i'm not leaving for aar i'm not packed for sbl i don't go to that shit man i'm a ministry person i am not a religion person i'm not that interested in religion (laughs) it's not that important to me but ministry is everything for me ministry is everything
1: so that's a good that's a good question and i think a follow-up that I would love to make that distinction for how much of that work of finding... It almost feels like what you're describing is finding your tribe along the continuity of time. Sure. How much of that work is helped by the benefit of, of, of position, of, of, of being mm-hmm. being in education, education administration to where that component is a part of a place? And how much of that work is... Comes from the the self knowing of what sort of people am I looking for, and how do how do yeah. I go and find them?
0: That's a really wonderful question. I'm sure you're hearing that a lot <laughs> in these interviews. Yeah. I certainly I am self aware enough yeah. to have very few friends, and what I mean by that is that I don't. I enjoy being by myself. I don't, I'm as extroverted as they come, but I enjoy my own company and I don't need to just hang out with people. I have very, very dear friends who add a lot to my life. I have people to whom I am so deeply loyal that I don't really care whether I like them or not. I'm just loyal to them because we have these shared passions and shared commitments. Mm. I don't even think about whether I like them or not. I don't have time, really. So when you ask the question about, does it come down to kind of the shared space or the shared commitments? um, I would say that it probably has more to do with the shared commitments Mm. because those really do transcend any one time in my life or any one space where I've been in ministry. That said, since I've moved to New Haven again, so I I lived here when I was an undergrad and then I moved back as a grown-up, I've made two friends, like I have two friends, and I feel like I've won the lottery, that I have two friends that I've made since I've been here, wow. And they have tons of people I care about, no question. But I think about, like you said, my tribe, like my circle of people, I think about those relationships in, in the context of a both mutual and reciprocal kind of relationship where they tell me their problems, and I tell them my problems, whereas many of the other relationships I have are, are um, they're mutual, but they're not necessarily reciprocal. They're the person who, like, when they come, like, the, the, the friends are the ones, if, if I were hospitalized, God forbid, if I were hospitalized, I don't care if they see me puke. Yeah. whereas the other ones who are coming to see me as like a pastoral visit, I'm really trying not to puke while they're in the room. I'm really trying to kind of usher them out before I do something really, you know, colorful.
2: <laughs> um,
0: it's wonderful to hear you laugh, though, Polly. <laughs> 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 laughing,
1: is, laughing is great. I, I mean, like, half of the work of this podcast is finding moments of levity in... In the midst of like talking about really difficult and sometimes grave, or at least heavy, if not necessarily difficult things. Um, So so maybe that's important. And and maybe we should lean into that a little bit because there's something that I've enjoyed um, in my tutelage with you. And this is my experience. You have a capacity to deliver very, very, I would not necessarily emotionally difficult, but conceptually complex and nuanced content with levity and i don't see that in most of my colleagues certainly not speaking ill of any of our colleagues here at yale not that not that levity is is the goal or necessarily a requirement. But I do notice it, and I do know some of the science around how humor impacts our capacity to learn. So I, I wonder um, if you can speak more about how, how you how you, you use humor and levity in pedagogical techniques. I'll, I'll narrow a little bit more. Is that intentional, or is that something that has come just that, that just sort of comes naturally from from personality?
0: Mm. Oh, that's a wonderful question. I have always appreciated people with a good sense of humor. Yeah. My father was very, very funny, yeah. and I have found that laughter is an anti-anxiety medication yeah. that we all really need sometimes. Mm-hmm. The best comedians, are ones who simply say something that's true that we never thought of before. Mm-hmm. Something that's true and ironic that we maybe never thought of before. So you ask the question, is this intentional on my part or is it just something that comes really naturally? I think that my respect for humor is something that's very intentional mm-hmm. because I think that there are some really ironic, downright weird dimensions of being a person of faith, trying to be a good person in community. It's just kind of hilarious when you think about the just outlandish notion (laughs) that we should get together and sing songs and talk to a mysterious force and stand up and sit down. It's just weird, really. And if we let it be a little weird, we can let it be a little bit wonderful. (laughs) And if we decide that being weird is not within our comfort zone, then we run the risk of becoming totalitarian, saying this can't be weird, so I have to make it normative. I have to make it what everybody needs. Mm. And that's not okay, right? Mm. So the first time I ever got intentional about humor, I took a class on humor writing when I was the summer between my first and second years of college. And I took it because I wanted to take a writing class, and it sounded like a good kind of framework for me. And one of the things that we did in that class was watched a ton of stand-up. And I think stand-up is so similar to preaching that I, I would say that there are certain things that have influenced my preaching none more. Well, the first, the first thing that the most influential thing that's affected preaching for me is that I taught aerobics for a long time. Yeah. And teaching aerobics gets anybody over um, stage fright. Yes, yes, yes. Because you literally have to keep talking when you can't breathe very well, <laughs> and you're physically so exposed, but you're focusing yeah. on what they need, not yourself. Yeah. yeah. And when you're focusing on pointing to like my, my students back there because the mirror is here. Yeah. <laughs> you're, yeah. you're so focused mm-hmm. on helping them to enjoy and find, to enjoy the process of finding a version of this class that's fun and fit making for them yeah. that you kind of get over yourself. And that really helped me to be a very um, non-anxious public speaker. I wouldn't say confident, but non-anxious. <laughs> non-anxious. But the second biggest thing was really uh, watching a ton of stand-up. Because stand-up comics, like the really brilliant stand-up comics, just tell true stories in a way that doesn't try to to um, correct for their weirdness. So Eddie Murphy, who I actually think, I mean, you know, complicated person, of course, but Eddie Murphy is, I think, in a class by himself oh, yeah. when it comes to stand-up. And all of his early stand-up, he even talks about this, I think it was in Delirious, which was, I think, his second album. Yeah. He talks about how his, all of his early stand-up was about pooping. <laughs> and all he did was, as like, a 10- and 11-year-old was described pooping in really graphic detail, and people were falling down laughing yeah. because of just, first of all, his unflappable descriptions as a younger person, and second, they just are laughing at the familiarity of it. So when I am, for example, um, giving a talk about leadership and describing patterns of human behavior that are just silly, they're just kind of ridiculous, and yet I'm not saying it in a way that's dismissive of other people because I'm doing the same thing if people don't find it funny, they're going to find it depressing because it's so intractable. So I'll make some kind of generalization like, oh, yeah, the here's an example. Oh, yeah. The trustee board in most churches is made up of people who have retired, are on a fixed income, and they are so anxious about their own retirement savings that they play that out in the church setting, saying we can't ever spend money on anything ever. Mm. And when the pastor wants to go to the meeting to talk about how it actually would be really good for the mission to make some changes to the space, they say that the pastor's not invited. Yes. Now, you say yes. I say this in a context of people who are in ministry already, and they thought they were the only ones whose trustee boards did this. Like. Do you know one that doesn't do this, or the church <laughs> custodian or the church musician? Where I'm not making fun of them, I'm saying there are patterns.
2: Yeah.
0: And systems people, yeah. systems people, are so like far, uh, far into the realm of accepting that there are patterns yeah. that there's no offense intended. Saying right. that, you know, for me as a woman to say. There are certain things that you can expect that a woman will say or do. It doesn't mean that I don't, I don't respect women. It's that I believe in systems yes. and that there's intergenerational transmission of behaviors. Yes. That doesn't ma- mean you're being sexist or ageist or um, you know in any way dismissive of the humanity of another person. It's just that there are patterns.
1: I want to do um, I, w- I want to do a, a little bit of a speed round of sure. um, top four things. Okay. Um, this was not on my original top four things speed round that I wrote for you, but since the conversation is moving this direction, we're just going to lean okay, into okay, it. Okay, um, okay, I mean, like, I'm, I'm trained in, in, in improv more than standout, up but <laughs> so that's, so that's where, like, following the energy comes from. Um, top four things, like, observable patterns of behavior in church systems that you think are more hilarious now than ever.
0: Meaning that they're so extreme? Yeah. Okay, so top four. Uh, one... The failure to recognize that when the world is changing you have to change too. Yeah. That would be number one. Yeah. Number two, the tendency to think that going back to normal is necessarily good. Mm. Even if normal really wasn't that good to Mm. begin with. The expectation that ministers have a secret playbook. We do. Exactly, the secret playbook, (laughs) where we know exactly how to handle it when an unprecedented series of events takes place. We know, we're just not gonna tell them about it. And fourth, the notion that only the minister has a ministry and that the congregation can delegate the leadership of their spiritual life to that person those four things are just hilarious. I also, because I really do understand um, understand emotion as something that is shared, it's not owned yeah. by any one person, Yeah. that I have a lot of hope yeah. for those. Um, I have hope for redemption and patterns that are unhealthy. Yeah. But I also know that um, just like Christians, I, okay, theologically, sure. I really believe that paul the apostle was right in framing following jesus as a better option than the other options available namely die to this world and rise in christ because it beats the other alternatives In other words, if we're going to think of the yoke is the yoke of following following Jesus as a disciple, or the yoke of Christianity, is um, the yoke is heavy. But all of us are going to be yoked to something. Yeah. All of us. So if I'm going to be in a dysfunctional family of people trying like crazy to follow Jesus and often blowing it. I'd really rather be in a church setting where at least people have come together around a higher truth Mm. than say um, a money-making scheme or a um, worshipfulness of beauty kind of coming together, Mm. uh, worship of material objects,
2: um,
0: worship of attention. Yes. if I'm gonna be in a dysfunctional family, I'd like it to be a family that stands for something I believe in. <laughs> and I believe that Jesus, You know, I said that I'm not yeah. that into religion. Um, the reason why I follow Jesus is I think that Jesus' um, teachings about the nature of God were true mm. and were correct. And as compared with other religions, I think there's plenty of valid, valid pursuits of truth, but this idea that God is love yeah. and God wants us to love each other that just works for me, and so I would rather be in a group that gathers around that fire, trying to warm its hands, yeah. trying to keep that fire burning for the next generation. If I'm going to be in a dysfunctional situation, no matter what, as long right. as I don't live in a yurt in Uzbekistan in the middle of nowhere, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that flavor of crazy. That flavor of crazy tastes just fine.
1: That um, th- that yoke is comparatively easy compared to like the crushing hand of the Roman plutocracy.
0: Compared to the crushing hand of idolatry, greed, yeah. selfishness, oppression, instrumentalization, yeah. basically all the successors to the Roman emperor.
1: There you go. Yeah. I've got another top four for okay. you. Um, top four uh, stand-ups. Um, and why?
0: Uh, well, I already said Eddie Murphy. Yeah. I yeah. love Tig Notaro, uh, because of her dryness. Yeah. She tells a story about introducing her wife to her family that I've probably heard it, um, maybe 15 or 20 times. And I never laugh less with each succeeding one, even though I know exactly what's going to happen next with her barefoot family picking... Them up with beer yeah. in Alabama in the airport. It just absolutely annihilates me. Um, I really, oh. comedian who was in the big sick.
1: Camille Nanjani. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I think his stand up is absolutely brilliant. And then the guy who plays the couch surfer, evangelical Christian, he had an HBO series for two oh, years. Oh, uh, P. Holmes. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Those, I think they're brilliant. Kamal Nanjani has a, a, an affectation that I really appreciate, yeah. where he just—you get this sense that he's watching everything from a distance. Mm. And I'm never able to do that. Like I am so in it. <laughs> I'm so in it. So, and then as I said with the other um, two, there's just a, a kind of a, a truth-telling honesty. I mean, Tig Notaro and Pete Holmes just tell stories.
1: Yeah. I want to pivot a little bit towards the future. So, um, um, one of the things that we talked a little bit about um, earlier today with um, our colleague Andrew McGowan um, is the future, like the the work of, the work of theological higher ed in the future. Very broad question. Feel free to take take it what direction you'd like. What do you see as the unique work of Andover Newton at Yale? Mm-hmm in the broader scope of theological higher education in a world that has just survived COVID or is continuing to survive COVID rather?
0: Well, because it, I think about that question from the minute I wake up until the minute I go to sleep most days, I always have to be selective of my metaphors. Sure. So the metaphor that I would lift up for Andover Newton right now is that of the midwife. So my Colleague Susan Beaumont, who writes about emergent leadership in churches. She's written about lots of other things too, but emergence is her more recent topic. Writes in her, she has this new book, it's not that new anymore. It came out, I think, 2017, 2018. It's called How to Lead When You Don't Know Where You're Going. And it's a book about emergent leadership or leadership in between times. And in that book, what I really took away was that. We are in a liminal season where that which was before is over, but that which is to come is not yet formed. And we might not live to see it formed. So the biggest mistake we could make would be to fall back on old ways, try to retreat back to that which is over just because it feels safer. That would be a huge mistake but the second biggest mistake would be rushing to premature answers diagnoses closure because we don't know what god is up to yet mm-hmm. so the question then becomes how do we hold this liminal space and allow that which god is creating in this space to come into some co- sort of cohesive Form, rather than trying to force mm. something that just isn't ready, that's just not ready, not ready for us, not ready for, um, not ready for prime time, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. So my most recent book, which came out this past summer, which is called Intentional Leadership, was very much inspired by Susan's admonition that we've got to figure out what we're going to do in this liminal space. So it's called Intentional Leadership in Between Seasons, mm. and what I name in that book is that. Jesus is coming, look busy. We have to be active in this space without trying to establish some imaginary plumb line or some imaginary horizon that might be something that is of the world and therefore a figment of our imagination, not our calling, not our calling. So what I'm really thinking about when we're building curriculum and educating our students here at Andover Newton is how do we prepare ministers who have the competencies that are needed to hold the space and allow God to do that work of forming and then deliver that forming without ever mistaking that forming for themselves. I mean, one of the reasons I teach our students so ardently about systems theory, for example, is that ministers who think that it's all about them can't do the job. They just can't do the job right now, because they need to be attentive to what's becoming formed in the community. So we teach them, we actively teach them how to not make things all about them. Mm -hmm. We have a competencies-oriented curriculum that a person would look at the competencies that we educate for and say, yeah, that's pretty much what ministers do. Well, it's easy for you to say now because you're seeing that we came up with it, but that, those competencies emerged out of a data set to die for, where we had very active input from people who are doing the work every day and telling us what they're seeing. So the way that you educate people that are not going to be able to be faithful and goal-oriented at the same time is very different from the way you would teach somebody how to run something. When people say, oh, we need to teach our students how to open a church and close a church, like that is bullshit. We need to teach them how to be present to what God is doing now and help usher it forward. The results are not something that our students are prepared to claim to know. They need to have the kind of education that will make it possible for them to, to speak and to listen and to share a vision, and then God will help us figure it out. Can you imagine if I had been hired in 2011 to be the dean, or 2005 when I joined the faculty, saying, yeah, and at some point, we're really gonna want you to move the school to New Haven, Connecticut. No, it's not like that. The job yeah. isn't like that.
1: And the, the, piece of, the piece of being present is one of the, certainly one of the central tenets of comedy, like Read the Room. Right.
0: Read the room. That's right. One of our, one of our confidences that we teach for at Andover Newton is perspicacity, which is a fancy $5 word for read the room. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: No, it's an, it's, it's, it's an important one. Like it's, paying attention to what's going on, telling people the truths that they already know but might not necessarily have given themselves permission to say themselves, or might need, because there is moral authority and power tied up in preaching and and in proclamation, might need someone who has moral authority to to tell them it's okay to think and say.
0: Well, some of the most compelling stand-up comics are ones who have been marginalized because they can see what's happening inside the corridors of power, but they're never going to be invited in. Sure. So they have a perspective on it that is enviable. Like Margaret Cho is a great example. Do you yeah. like Margaret Cho?
1: Well, uh, yes. Yes, um, Yes. race and ethnicity de- de- demands that I do.
2: I guess. But yes, I also love Margaret Cho. <laughs> but
0: Margaret Cho, like when she talks about about being a performance artist in San Francisco as a young person, all she has to do is tell the story of what she was doing. And you just see that she really lives in a different world than those who control resources in our culture. And so she sees everything. She sees everything. And she's gross and she's wonderful. I remember one of my favorite lines of, I I heard her live once, but I've seen her recorded. Sure, sure. 15, 20 times. But she has this, um, I love the way she describes her critics where she talks about how somebody said, why do you always have to talk about menstruation? And her response was, it happens so often. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just true, it was just true. It true. But for some reason, it, it's all the funnier because it's just true. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah.
1: I want to pivot a little bit more. Okay. Um, the thing that I think that all of us who have worked in in caring spaces, in that also happen to be forced into doing systems work as well, um, <laughs> hope and I, 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 I Ian, um, our our friend Ian down the hill, Ian Oliver, told me that I I'm no longer allowed to use the word resilience,
0: because, <laughs> because so many
1: people are tired oh, of hearing it. Oh, I've heard it.
0: this. I've heard this uh, from his colleague Sharon too. Yeah. That students just hear it as a um I don't know some kind of cop-out like I don't need to make things better for you because you're so resilient
1: it's a dog whistle like <laughs> it, it's really become that by this time but um the piece I, I think that's important is I'll, I'll use the language of tending the wellspring okay. um our, our friend and collaborator uh, Shane Claiborne talks about tending the garden uh I wonder if you can talk with me because in addition to the work of, of physical wellness, what sort of things, what sort of practical things you do to tend the, the inner wellspring that keeps you going? Because it definitely seems like there, there aren't a lot of people in our world to think that the world is headed in the right direction. Yeah.
0: Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah,
1: what are those things yeah. for you?
0: Well, when it comes to what direction I think the world is, is heading in, yeah. I, I honestly um, sometimes have to just actively work to let go yeah. and say, the direction the world is going is in many ways none of my business. Mm. I can only work within this membrane, this cell, C-E-L-L, and try to make it um, as healthy and contagiously beautiful as I possibly can. And I really relied on authors like Adrienne Marie Brown, who I can tell you love Adrienne Marie Brown, um, in, in thinking about just the completeness of tending one's responsibilities and stewarding them really well, because yeah. if you start thinking just in these such global terms, uh, one can't but get discouraged and possibly even less effective in that, that fractal unit that you're responsible for. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, so yeah. with that we 're going the right direction, we're all going the wrong direction, we're all going to hell. who knows? Here is what, here's what keeps my well full. One is that I read this acronym. I was going through a really tough time. And I read this beautiful acronym um, in a book that I don't remember what the book was. I don't even remember what the book was about. But it was an acronym NURSE, which st- stands for Nutrition, Understanding, Rest, Spirit, and Exercise. Mm. And so it was some kind of prescription for uh, mental health brain care, like just kind of basic, basic brain care. So I take those five steps very, very seriously. I try really hard to eat well. Yeah. I don't eat, I'm not like crazy. I mean, I like, I like, uh, I like some processed food. Yeah. I like food a lot. Understanding, yeah. meaning seeking out, whether it's therapy, whether yeah, it's talking yeah, yeah. with a confidant, At rest, I'm vigilant about sleep. Yeah. My sleep hygiene is immaculate. Um, spirit, like worship yeah, yeah. life and exercise, so that kind of first aid, that kind of uh, mental uh, well-being keeps my well very full. Um, I'm quite sure that reading, because it gives me so many new ideas, is filling my well all the time. And as for what keeps me hopeful is that I really believe in what I do. I really Mm -hmm. believe that the church even as it is now is a setting in our culture of moral reasoning and meaning making. The society that lacks moral reasoning and meaning making makes terrible mistakes, Mm. makes terrible mistakes. So the church is doing that now poorly and yet I actually don't mind the idea of dedicating my career to holding a shell, keeping it healthy enough that when God makes this next thing happen, whatever it might be, that there is some kind of faithful remnant there. There is an ember upon which somebody could blow. Kind of like how the Irish saved civilization, was that book, the Irish saved civilization, by keeping, keeping the art that made the Renaissance possible, I feel like a learned clergy serving faith communities is so worth it. Yeah. Is so worth it that I don't get the discouragement one would feel of um, throwing all my energy at something that doesn't matter.
1: There's there's so much wisdom in that, so much self awareness in that, um, that is that that is incredibly refreshing. We have just one more question left. It is the question that we ask everyone that we end on is, what do you want the world to look like when you're done with
2: it?
0: (laughs) Oh, wow. I just preached this past weekend on the true nature of joy.
2: Ooh.
0: And I was preaching, it was a passage from 3rd Isaiah, the one about how you um, build the houses and live in them. And take spouses and make babies with them. And anybody who lives to be less than 100, that's going to be the big shocker. Uh, So in any case, Isaiah is painting this really, um, this utopian future to Babylonian exiles who've just come home and found out that Judah had kind of moved on (laughs) without them.
1: For the listener who doesn't have... uh, the Have a lot of experience with um, academic theology. The book of Isaiah, as it appears in the Bible, we believe with a fairly reasonable level of historicity that it was written in three, it was actually three different things that were written and then sort of smushed together. But please continue.
0: And written to three different types of audiences. And this particular audience, so the last part of Isaiah, is written to people who had been told that they would return home and everything would just be perfect. And they've gotten home, and it's not. So the thing that I zeroed in on in this sermon is the fact that as Isaiah is making all these promises of what is going to get better. The first thing that he promises is that you will have joy, Mm. then food, then shelter, then long life, then healthy babies, like those things all come after. Mm. And the reason it's on my mind is because I was struggling with this passage. You know, I was wrestling with this passage all week. And where I found a framework that really helped me is of all places, and I can't believe I'm saying this out loud, but in uh, George Marsden's biography of Jonathan Edwards. So Jonathan Edwards, Mm. and if your listeners don't know who Jonathan Edwards is, you're in very good company, but... (laughs) He was an 18th century, yeah, really probably the person who um, uh, evangelical Christians and progressive Christians both claim, with caveats, yeah. as a preeminent American theologian, perhaps the most important American theologian if you look at the whole Western canon. Yeah. So Jonathan Edwards was known for being really stern. His most famous sermon was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Mm. But what really uh, distinguished his work in the very, very early days of the Enlightenment was that he didn't set intellect aside, but rather found God through intellect. Mm. And he framed all of God's work in terms of beauty, Mm. beauty. Now, there's this whole field called theological aesthetics about which I know absolutely nothing, but I do believe that the idea that our lives are a response to the beauty of God's creation. Mm. And the way Marsden describes Jonathan Edwards' theology was to say that our response as faithful people first is to love that which God loves. Mm. So... Coming back to your question about just, you know, my eschatology. <laughs> like, what do I want when this word I'm done? When I'm done with it, what do I want to see?
2: Um,
0: I really believe that this notion of God's ever-ongoing creation, ever-expanding creation, were it to be recognized with the wonder it deserves, there would be peace. There would be peace. I mean, I've joked many times that if everybody got eight hours sleep a night, there would be no war anymore. (laughs) Because if everybody were able to be that present and that lucid, they would realize the futility of, of violence. But I'd like to think that everything that we do to cause people to love what God loves and to acknowledge and respect the beauty of God's creation if every little bit that we do has a, a, that butterfly wing around the world effect, I'll feel like I've done enough.
1: Um, Dean Sarah Drummond, thank you so much for thanks, the chat today. Paulie.
0: I feel this has been so cathartic. You asked so many questions that made me feel so interesting.
1: <laughs> my thanks to my guest, the Reverend Dean Sarah Drummond. You can find out more about Andover Newton Theological School, Yale Divinity School, and her work as a leader for ministerial education in the links below. Thank you so much for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in southwest Philadelphia on the unceded land of the Lenni-Lenape tribe and the Black Bottom community. Our associate producers are Willa Jaffe and Kia Watkins. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review, and a comment and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Uncommon Good Pod. Follow us there for closed captioned video content and more goodies. We love, 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 love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on social media or an email at UncommonGoodPod at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, Wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good to be the uncommon good.